0: Good afternoon. Uh, During a recent town hall meeting uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, President Barack Obama answered a question that nobody had asked. He said, when you hear people saying socialized medicine, understand I don't know anybody in Washington who's proposing that, certainly not me. The term socialized medicine has become something of an epithet uh, in health care reform debates. From the Truman administration through the Clinton administration and now in the Obama administration, it has been used to smear every effort by the American left to achieve universal health insurance coverage, and it's even been used to smear uh, private sector innovations like health maintenance organizations. In the 2008 presidential campaign, the Democratic candidates proposed to achieve universal coverage or near universal (laughs) coverage largely through the private sector by mandating that Americans purchase health insurance and creating new government subsidies and bureaucracies and health insurance regulations. Maybe they would throw in a new government health insurance program, but only to compete as one among many choices in the marketplace. Republican candidate Rudolph Giuliani could barely uh, wait to describe those reforms as socialized medicine. In response, the left has been hard at work trying to neutralize, in the words of Rutgers professor David Greenberg, the talismanic power of this old slayer of reform proposals past and recast the phrase socialized medicine as a piece of atavistic Cold War era alarmism. What is socialized medicine? Where does, it, where does it exist, if at all? Is the left correct that the term does not apply to the reforms currently before Congress, or does the left protest too much? To discuss this with us today is Stan Dorn. Stan is a senior research associate at the Urban Institute. He's an expert on Medicaid, the state children's health insurance program, auto-enrollment strategies for providing health coverage, health coverage tax credits, and the uninsured. He's also the author of Are We Heading Towards Socialized Medicine?, a policy brief published by the Urban Institute that we have made available to you today and is also available at the Urban Institute website, www.urban.org. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute and the author of another policy brief we've made available today titled Does Barack Obama Support Socialized Medicine? That briefing paper is likewise available at the Cato Institute website, www.cato.org. Now, the way we're going to proceed today is that I will offer my thoughts first to be, to be followed by Stan will then open the door uh, or open the floor to uh, questions from the audience and uh, after that, we'll invite you all to join us upstairs in our winter garden for a luncheon reception. Now, supporters of the healthcare forums moving through Congress have taken great pains to prove that those reforms do not amount to socialized medicine. To quote Urban Institute President Robert Reichauer, classic socialism involves government or collective ownership of the means and distribution of production. Truly socialized medicine doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Now, Reichauer is correct, but by that standard, socialized medicine does not exist anywhere. Then again, by that standard, capitalism doesn't exist anywhere, and neither does democracy. Others, including Hillary Clinton, have uh, offered another definition of socialized medicine. They have suggested that socialized medicine only exists where there's government rationing of medical care. Uh, pointing to the U.S. Medicare program, Clinton has said, yes, the government pays the bills, but no government bureaucrat tells you what doctor you have to go to or what hospital you have to go to. My friend Stan Dorn and his co-author write, strict limits on consumer choice, rationing, delays, and poor quality are all concerns traditionally associated with socialized medicine. These concerns, however, do not apply to the plans advanced by leading Democratic candidates for president in 2008. That doesn't sit... I would argue that that doesn't sit well as a definition of socialized medicine. The reason is that barriers to access such as waiting lists, occur when government limits spending below what is required to meet patients' demand for medical care. To say that socialized medicine exists only when there are access problems is to make the the absurd argument that a system of socialized medicine would cease to be socialized medicine if the government just wrote bigger checks. For the most part, however, the socialized medicine deniers claim that medicine cannot be considered socialized if a country retains a large role for the private sector. Again, uh, Stan and his co-author write that the Obama healthcare plan and similar plans uh, can't be considered socialized medicine because none would overturn the dominant role of private insurance and private providers in America's healthcare system. A little thought experiment, though, can can illustrate why this definition of socialized medicine is also inadequate. Imagine two countries: Country A. Has a healthcare system where the government taxes its citizens and spends the money on the government's healthcare priorities. Country B has a healthcare system that is completely private, but the government forces private citizens, healthcare providers, and insurance companies to spend the s- same amount of money on the exact same priorities that Country A does. Now, under this definition, Country A would have a, so- uh, a socialized system uh, of medicine, but Country B would not. Even though there's no difference in access to care, physician salaries, or who controls those decisions, the two healthcare systems are functionally identical. The only difference would be that one of those countries hangs the word private on its system. So the presence of a private sector doesn't seem to be the deciding factor. And even Obama healthcare advisor Gene Lambrew has written that, quote, the government role in socialized medicine systems can include public financing of private insurance and providers. So what is, then, socialized medicine? Well, I propose the following definition. So, uh, socialized medicine exists to the extent that the government controls health care resources and socializes the costs. Now, notice that under this definition, it's irrelevant whether we describe medical resources as public or private. What matters, what determines real as opposed to nominal ownership, is who controls how those resources are used. Whether we're talking about financial resources, like wages or insurance companies' assets, or physical capital like hospitals and medical facilities, whether we're talking about medical products or the human capital of doctors and other clinicians, ownership over all of these resources is a bundle of rights. When government excludes people from using those resources in forbidden ways, government assumes control over a larger share of each bundle of ownership rights. That equals more state ownership of the financial, the physical, and even human capital in a nation's uh, healthcare sector, and it makes this definition identical to the one proposed by Reichshauer and others that socialized medicine is when government owns the means of production. Notice also that the particular decisions the government makes with this control are likewise irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether the government is stingy about medical spending, like uh, Canada's Medicare system, the British National Health Service, or the US Medicaid program. Or obscenely lavish, as the uh, as uh, is the case with the U.S. Medicare program. What matters is who decides whether that healthcare system is stingy or lavish. Now, it's worth noting that under what I'll call the Cannon-Reichauer definition, America's healthcare sector is already more than half socialized. Government controls nearly half of U.S. healthcare spending directly and indirectly controls much of the rest. Government controls the number of physicians, who can hire them, where clinicians can practice, and what tasks they may perform. Government controls whether, how, and to whom medical products can be marketed or sold. Government often controls who can open a hospital or invest in new equipment. It controls what kind of health insurance we may purchase and where we may purchase it. And most of America's healthcare sector operates under government price controls. So to paraphrase Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick that advocates of socializing medicine never played was to convince the American people that we don't already have it. Under the Obama plan and similar proposals before Congress, government would control even more of these resource decisions. Government would assume control over even more of our health care dollars by raising taxes to subsidize health care, including through a new government health insurance program. In the private sector, government would compel Americans to purchase health insurance, dictate what we purchase, how we purchase it, control how much we pay, and determine the relationships between ostensibly private doctors and hospitals. Government bureaucrats would determine whether, uh, in in certain cases, whether Americans uh, receive certain medical services. And as Harvard economist and sometime Obama health advisor David Cutler writes, universal coverage necessarily means a larger role for government than is the case now. If the healthcare reforms before Congress become law, then there won't there won't be that much of medicine left to socialize. Yet President Obama and the New York Times and others keep making this absurd claim that the president is not pushing socialized medicine during the presidential campaign. Uh, but that those claims uh, don't stand up to reason, uh, and. The public knows it. During the presidential campaign, a Harvard-Harris poll found that among Americans who claim to know what socialized medicine is, 57% believe that Barack Obama supports it. Some people who support Obama's health plan do so precisely because because they they believe it will lead to uh, socialized medicine. New York Times columnist Paul Krugman writes that Obama's health care plan, quote, could evolve into single payer over time. Jacob Hacker, who's the Berkeley political scientist that was – who's really the the generator of this idea of creating a a public option, a new government program to compete with private insurance, actually embraces the term socialized medicine and uh, has said – someone once said to me, this is a Trojan horse for single payer. And I said, well, it's not a Trojan horse. It's right there. I'm telling you. We're going to get there over time, slowly. And even my friend Stan Dorn uh, considers single-payer health, a single-payer healthcare system to be, quote, the functional equivalent of socialized medicine. So it's hard to imagine how there could be more evidence to show the socialized medicine deniers that they're wrong. It brings to mind the old Monty Python bit where King Arthur cuts off the Black Knight's arm and says, I've cut your arm off. And the Black Knight says, no, you didn't. <laughs> Next, they'll be telling us it's not socialized medicine. It's only a flesh wound. Bob Reichauer used to be the head of the Congressional Budget Office. During the Clinton administration's attempt to reform health care, he took a lot of heat for the CBO's position that when the government tells private individuals how to spend their own money, that's still a tax, even if that money never passes through the federal treasury. Reichauer, who happens to be Stan's boss at the Urban Institute, was correct. A tax is still a tax, even if the money never enters the public sector. Likewise, socialized medicine is still socialized medicine, even if the resources are nominally private. Reasonable people could disagree over whether uh, President Obama's health care plan would be good or bad, but to suggest that it is not a lurch towards socialized medicine, I submit, is absurd. Thank you very much.
1: about uh, Monty Python makes me think about the opening scene, bring out your dead, bring out your dead, health reform is not dead yet Neither is socialized medicine, but the two have little to do with each other. Um, I'd like to discuss with you today the question of whether health reform is being discussed in Congress is fairly characterized as socialized medicine. And when I uh, took speech classes in high school, oh, 50 years ago or so, they said you should generally talk about three things. Now, personally, I think that rule is rooted in Christian theology. Um, but even though I'm Jewish, I'm going to follow it, and I'm going to talk with you today about the definition of socialism, whether it fairly characterizes proposals being discussed in Congress, and third, whether this question matters at all. Uh, To begin with, the definition of socialized medicine. In particular, or more broadly, the definition of socialism. Now, in a sense, discussions of definition are arbitrary. You can say a word means whatever you want it to mean. There's, you know, the famous line from Alice Through the Looking Glass, when I choose a word, Humpty Dumpty said, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Now, Michael, to his credit, is not going down that road. He wants to do a faithful, accurate attempt to define the term socialized medicine or the term socialism. And the criterion that we use, I would submit, in in gauging the accuracy of a definition is how well it fits our usage of the term in real life outside the the hot house of political debate. So socialism, Um, what does it mean? Well, Michael's definition is, it seems to me, a larger role for government means socialism. Anything that expands the government's ability to tell you what to do with your resources, anything that expands direct spending, uh, increased regulation, is socialism, or at least a move towards socialism, a move in a socialistic direction, I think was the phrase that he used. Now, I have a couple of concerns about that definition. One is it fails to distinguish between different types of government intervention, different types of government efforts to change the world in various ways. I'll give you an example. Increased spending, if I understand Michael's definition, would be a socialistic move, suppose we were to do a voucher plan and say we're going to put more money on the table to increase people's ability to make choices. That would increase spending. That would increase the reach of the government. Would that be a move in the direction of socialism? I'm not sure. A second concern that I have is that socialism is a noun. It's not an adjective. It's a set of policies. It's not a direction. In other words, and of course, as in any border that you draw on a map, uh, there's a little fuzziness at the border. But the basic notion is there are certain policies that are socialist. There are other policies that are not. It's It's not a direction. It's not like north. It's a place. It's like North Pole. So if if you were to take the kind of definition that Michael has suggested, namely anything that increases the footprint of government, is – socialism. Let's think about some of the socialist ventures in American history. The Constitution, for example. We replaced the Articles of Confederation with the U.S. Constitution, a much stronger role for the federal government that obviously anticipated Karl Marx by a couple centuries. Uh, in the late 1800s, when the federal marshals went out west to bring the law to the desperados, um, that was, they were federally paid. They were increasing federal regulations, things like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. They were enforcing that. That was clearly Socialism. The twentieth century's uh, set of socialist luminaries begins with Theodore Roosevelt, who created the National Park System, continues with Dwight D. Eisenhower, who created a federally funded highway system, and of course includes Richard Nixon, who created the Environmental Protection Agency, dramatically expanded the food stamp program, and as we learned the other day in the newspapers, favored the Equal Rights Amendment. The fact is none of those folks would think of themselves as socialists. Their peers wouldn't have called themselves socialists. They weren't socialists. That's not how we use the word wordy. Now, how how would I define socialism? Um, I would define it the way they do in the dictionary. Let me give you the first three definitions from Webster's. Number one any of various economic and political theories of advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods. 2A, a system of society or group living in which there is no private property. B, a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state. In other words, something is socialist when the government owns and operates it. Something is not socialist when the government spends money, creates incentives, gives information to the public, or creates regulation. Um, Now, this isn't just Webster's definition. It's also how socialists themselves talk. I took a look at the most recent analysis from the the Democratic Socialists of America, their their, uh, platform, Where We Stand, and they characterize it exactly the same way uh, that uh, Noah Webster's descendants do. Socialists have historically supported public ownership and control of the major institutions of society. And it's not an accidental feature. It's the essence of their political philosophy, their view. And I encourage you to go on their website um, to, to check it out if you doubt me, their view is that capitalism, the private ownership of the means of production, is inherently unfair, unequitable, and unjust. And they denigrate things like the Great Society, they denigrate the New Deal. Uh, Here's I'll continue with the the DSOC uh, position statement. Today, the mildly redistributive welfare state liberalism of the 1960s, which accepted the corporate dominance of economic decision-making, can no longer be the programmatic basis for a majoritarian progressive politics. Uh, And then they go on to say that the answer is to empower our wage and income earners through building cooperative and public institutions that own and control local economic resources. So what is socialized medicine under that definition? Well, the British National Health Service comes pretty darn close since most of the hospitals are owned by the, by the Brits. The physicians are salaried by the Brits. Our Veterans Administration Health Care Service fits the definition. The hospitals are owned by the government for the most part. The physicians are contracting with the government for the most part. Now, I will agree that there is such a thing as the functional equivalent of socialized medicine, but it's not the Medicare program. What I would describe as the functional equivalent of socialized medicine would be when the government exerts so much control over economic decision making that it's essentially the same degree of control that would have been exercised as if the government had actually owned and operated the institutions themselves. So what's an example? Well, I think the Kucinich-Conyers single-payer proposal in Congress does fairly fit that description of the functional equivalent of socialized medicine. It would indeed lead, and I agree, Michael's point is well taken, the formalism of public versus private isn't necessarily the key uh, 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 distinction. So in this case, what the Conyers-Cusinich bill would do is it would say that the federal government defines what the covered benefits are in the public plan. It's illegal for private insurance to sell benefits, that are, to sell coverage that equals those benefits. It's illegal for a physician participating in the public plan to contract with someone privately to provide services that are covered for the public benefits. So in other words, it's the federal government that sets the rules for all provision of health care within the areas and it's univer- and the demarcated by the statute. The government sets the reimbursement rates. The government establishes formularies. All capital investment is controlled by the government. The government decides where there are new hospital beds. The government decides where there are new MRI scanners, new CAT scanners. Now, that is, I would submit, there's very little distinction between that and actually the government owning the hospitals, salarying the physicians, and telling them what to do. But Are the discussions that are taking place in Congress right now about the proposals made by Democratic committee chair people, the proposal made by President Obama, are those in the same neighborhood? Not by a country mile. My goodness. These proposals don't even have a national benefits package. They say, well, there's going to be actuarial value. Now, the, uh, actuarial value standards. You have to have a couple different, you know, gold, silver, and copper covering various percentages of health care costs. And you can be in the gold tier, and you can cover benefit X, benefit Y. You can have different levels of deductibles, different levels of copays. And in fact, there's an attempt, a la Massachusetts, to set up a quasi-market in insurance, to move the health insurance system in the direction of a functioning market. What do I mean by that? Today, um... My employer makes decisions about my insurance and bears the cost. Under this proposal, I'm in the exchange, I make a choice between health plans, and I have to weigh the increased cost of one insurance plan versus the increased benefits or whatever evidence there is of superior quality. So, in other words, it is the consumer who makes that choice and has to bear a significant amount of financial consequences as well as enjoying the benefits of that particular choice. Now, it is certainly not the classic definition of a free market, nothing close, but it does move closer towards a market system uh, than what most of us have now. And in fact, what is interesting is consumer choice increases. About half of us who get insurance from our employer have no choice in what plans we offer. It is take it or leave it. The employer tells us that is what we take. And that is particularly so among low income people. Below $20,000 a year, only 37 percent of people who have employer sponsored insurance have more than one plan to pick from. These folks could be in a health insurance exchange, have lots of different choices, so there is increased consumer choice. Now it is true there's more government spending. If you want to cover the uninsured, most of them are low-income people. You have to provide them with the funds. Otherwise, they can't afford coverage. And it's true. There's increased government regulation. There's a mandate to purchase coverage. There are new rules for the health insurance market. But More regulation and more government dollars is not the same thing as socialism. Socialism is when the government owns and runs the industry or exerts such an incredible tight degree of control that it's the functional equivalent of owning and running the industry. And nothing in this proposal is close to it. Now, uh, Michael mentioned the public plan. And this is something that you indeed do hear People talk about that. The notion of a Trojan horse for a single payer. Um, uh, You can uh, uh, ride whatever Trojan horses you want. But um, my colleagues at the Urban Institute are going to be coming out with a paper shortly. Uh, John Hollihan, uh, the boss who comes between me and the, the Uber boss, Bob Reishauer, um, did some testimony yesterday in House Ways and Means. You can check it out, where we, t- we tried to analyze. Suppose you had a system like the one that's being discussed in Congress with an individual mandate. Suppose you had a public plan that plays pays Medicare and then a little bit extra, which is, I think, what most people are talking about. Uh, and let's assume, unlike a lot of people's projections that you may have heard about, the, these, the, many of the other projections that are out there say, well, let's let's just say if you're an employer and you're picking between today's health insurance and Medicare, uh, Medicare reimbursement rates, you're going to pick Medicare because it's cheaper and that makes sense. But what my colleagues John and uh, John Hollahan and others have done is to say, let's model what the insurance industry will do in response. In other words, if the public plan comes forward and offers a cheaper product, it's reasonable to expect the private insurance industry will respond. They'll lower their premium to keep their market share. And what they found is there would indeed be a reduction in the number of people with private insurance, but it would not be drastic. It would be be a reduction from 177 million in the status quo of 2009 to an estimated 163 million. Now, the, the number may be more than that, the number may be less than that, and critically important are the d- details of policy design. You can set it up in such a way that there's a level playing field. You can set it up in such a way that there's a crooked playing field. And the crooked playing field can favor the private sector, as it does in Medicare today, I would argue, where Medicare plans get paid more per capita than Medicare fee for service. Or you could set it up so it would unfavor- unfairly favor the public sector. But the key is to set the, the rules of the game properly so that public insurance galvanizes a response by private coverage. I will tell you why why, uh, why many of us favor uh, the existence of a public option. It has nothing to do with Trojan horse for single payer. I can assure you of that. Um, Here's the problem. Private insurance markets today are incredibly concentrated. Uh, There's been a a tremendous amount of consolidation in the insurance industry and also in the hospital industry. So at this point, um, there are 36 states, I believe is that the number? Yeah. In 36 states, the top three insurers have 65% of the market. In thirty-four states, insurance industry concentration is so high that it exceeds the Department of Justice guidelines for triggering possible review for antitrust enforcement. And if you look at the pricing behavior of insurance companies, even the little guys, they shadow price. You know, it's like the little minnows get that get caught up in the, in, the, in the current generated by the whale. When the big guys go up, the little guys raise their premiums, when the big guys go down, the little guys lower their premiums. So you don't really have effective competition in private insurance markets. Now you could launch a massive wave of antitrust enforcement, but an alternative. Alternative is you could put a new player in the game that is not going to have to report profits back to the shareholders, that is going to, to have the leverage to lower the costs and a, mar- and a good reason to share those savings with the purchaser. That's the goal here. Uh, and uh, as further evidence of some of the problems in the private insurance market, uh, Price Waterhouse noted that the percentage of insurance premiums in the largest for-profit firms went down from 85.3 percent, in ninety eight to 81.6% in 2008. So obviously what's happening is the big guys are using their market share not to cut costs for the rest of us, but to increase their returns, to report better quarterly earnings, to generate higher pay for the CEOs and do better in the stock market. And that is not something that benefits uh, much of the rest of the United States. So the attempt here is to say, let's put a public program on the field that will lower costs, force the private sector to compete, they'll lower costs to... And that way, we'll help restrain healthcare growth. Now, does this matter? Well, politically, it matters. Uh, Politically, it matters because the cry of socialism has been used effectively by advocates, by opponents of government expansion uh, all across the board. In the 30s, it was used to try to oppose social security. In the 60s, it was used to try to prevent Medicare. And of course, national health reform has been repeatedly torpedoed. I don't know, how many of you have seen the accounts of uh, Frank Luntz's memo about health reform? How many of you have seen that? He talked about, he recommended the words to use Frank Luntz is a noted Republican pollster. He said, talk about a government takeover of health care. Talk about government bureaucrats running your health care. That's what will work. And then when he was asked in the media, well, is it true? He said, well, that's not my specialty. I'm not a health policy expert. He didn't care. It wasn't relevant whether it was true or not. All that was relevant was it's a way to talk about it that will get people to oppose health reform. And so this issue is important in terms of figuring out uh, uh, how the American public views this. Does it matter in terms of what's right and what's wrong, in terms of good policy? I would say no. I would say the questions for us to ask are, what are the concrete consequences of reform proposals for the American people? What would a proposal do for our access to health care? What would it do for the amounts that we pay for health care, either in the form of premiums, out-of-pocket costs, or or taxes that go for public funding? What would it do to our access to care, the quality of care? What would it do for our choices? Would it increase the range of choices? What would it do for our information? Would we get better information about the choices that we make or worse information? Those are the kinds of questions that you should ask. What are the practical consequences of health reform for the American people? And I hope that after today, you'll agree with me, we should take this red herring of socialized medicine. And unless we're discussing the uh, Kucinich-Conyers plan, put it to the side and look at the merits of what reform proposals will mean for the United States. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Stan. uh, Welcome. If if I may, before we go to questions, I I just wanted to uh, uh, offer a few thoughts. Uh, I think that you're you're asking all the right questions about what will the practical impact of these reforms be. I mean, that's that's really more important than this question of socialized medicine. So a lot of people use this issue, you know, use the phrase socialized medicine as shorthand for lousy healthcare. And uh, in in my paper and in, in in my remarks, I put that question to the side. I do actually happen to think that it does mean lousy healthcare, and so uh, and so is a useful uh, that that socialized medicine does reduce the quality of health care and increase its cost and um, and therefore uh, the uh, the question of whether this uh, these reforms that are before Congress can be uh, 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 Reasonably described as a step towards socialized medicine, I think is an interesting question. But you're definitely right that uh, that the most important thing is the impact of those policies on on individuals. Yes, um, the question would vouchers, a uh, universal health insurance voucher, for example, be considered socialism? And that I think uh, de- uh, depends uh, on the way that it's uh, on the way that it's structured. I'll, I'll bring in an element of of my definition that I, I discussed in the paper. I didn't discuss in my remarks, which is that um, it depends on whether that, that policy is designed really to socialize the cost in the sense of uh, the Marxist uh, ideal of from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. If the way that, if the, way that the voucher is designed is so that you are trying to tax the rich uh, to bring up uh, the level of health care that, uh, that's delivered to the poor or the needy because... Uh, uh, their, uh, they have higher health care costs and and that's a coercive uh, uh, policy then I think that yeah uh, that does uh, uh Fit the definition of socialism or socialized medicine that that uh, that I mentioned, not only because you're redistributing resources, but because when the government does that, uh, offers a voucher for health insurance, it has to come up. It gives it gives the government enormous control over uh, not just the health insurance market, but the delivery of medical care. The government has to come up with a definition of what is health insurance, so that we know who gets who can get a voucher and who can't. And as we've seen, those sorts of uh, giving the government those sorts of controls. Can increase the cost of health insurance for one thing as as providers demand that their services be covered, but it can also be used to block different types of health insurance the way that uh, those uh, that the government regulation has been used to block say uh, plans like Kaiser Permanente, which is not just a type of health insurance it's a way of delivering medical care so um, so that 's I think something that 's missing from uh, I think the Constitution and uh, efforts to civilize the Wild West by imposing a rule of law. What you're not trying to do there is level society in an egalitarian sense, take from uh, each according to their ability, and give to each according to their need. Those are really efforts just to uh, uh, impose a rule of law. Um, I'm glad that, I think we actually agree that the question here is really one of degree. You said that there is some, the government can get so involved uh, in uh, healthcare markets, then what you get is the functional equivalent of socialized medicine. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think where we disagree is whether government is there or not. And it raises an interesting question. If the government, here in the United States, government controls uh, 46% of our healthcare dollars directly. That's government spending, accounts for 46% of US healthcare spending. So it raises an interesting question. If the government has, by virtue of uh, that, uh, doing all of that spending, if it has the power, uh, by virtue of its purchasing power, to shape our health care sector. But it makes different decisions than it might make, say, if the government did have nominal ownership over hospitals and uh, contracted directly with doctors and paid them on a salary. If it makes different decisions this way than it would if the government explicitly owned everything, then is uh, our health care sector less socialized? And I think the answer is no. Uh, the reason is that the government still has uh, the, uh, e- the power to make those decisions uh, or to control those decisions by virtue of controlling the money. If it makes what seem to be nonsensical decisions or different uh, de- decisions that would be different from what it would make if it nominally owned those resources, that doesn't mean the government has any less control. It just means that government doesn't always behave rationally or government doesn't, um, uh, doesn't always behave as we might like it to. If the government chooses not to decide, it still has made a choice because it still has uh, uh, control over those resources. Um, as to your point that, uh, that the president would increase health insurance choices, uh, on the one hand, he might. If creating this new health insurance exchange that he has proposed gives uh, frees individuals to purchase uh, 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 more plans on a, uh, with, uh, with fewer penalties more plans than their employer offers with fewer penalties than they would have to face if they went out and purchased health insurance on the individual market. It might expand choice. But at the same time, coming up with that government definition of what is health insurance could eliminate uh, half of the plans that are available on the market right now, half of the health insurance options. And that's just going by the, the hints that the president has dropped about where he would set that standard. And you could have uh, an actuarial equivalence standard, uh, as as you mentioned, that would still cut off a lot of options becu- because you might not be able to buy, say, a catastrophic policy that would be compatible with a health savings account. But that is still just an aspiration, and it's going to be very hard to convince the providers who want their particular services covered uh, to agree to an actuarial uh, equivalence standard. Um, finally, uh, I think that... Um, uh, Frank, Luntz is, Frank Luntz is an interesting character, uh, and I don't go to him for advice on health policy. I might consider his advice when it comes to how to talk about health care reform. But to describe these reforms that are before Congress right now as a term, in terms of a, uh, uh, being a government takeover of health care or uh, giving government bureaucrats more control over your health care decisions, I take him at his word that that's probably going to move public opinion i would I submit that it has the added benefit, as we used to say when I worked in the Senate, of being true <laughs> well um, I, 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 you're right,
1: I disagree a little bit with some of those things. Uh, do you mind if I, if no, I please. Uh, respond a little bit here um, we're waiting for your questions, but in the meantime we'll we'll go back and forth. Um, you don't look like a shy group, but we'll um, uh, so. I wanted to comment on a couple of things that you mentioned, Michael. One is I don't
0: – Ma'am, if you could please take that conversation outside. We can wait. Thank you.
1: Good. Um, so a couple things. One is um, redistribution of wealth. Um, if, if I understood you correctly, Michael, what you were suggesting is that something is not socialist unless it's funded by a progressive revenue mechanism, taking an, – and it's an attempt to level, uh, level the playing field in a certain sense, taking more money from the rich to give to the poor. Well, what that would suggest is that if you had the British National Health Service that was funded by a value-added tax or a flat tax, that that's not socialism. I don't think that's true. If you had, if you had the Veterans Administration giving health care for everybody in America – Public hospital hospitals publicly owned doctors publicly salaried, and the money was raised by a VAT tax or a sales tax or a flat tax. that would still be socialism. What counts is not how the money is raised; what counts is is when the money is spent is it through an extraordinary degree of government control equivalent to ownership now I, I would just take strenuous exception to the notion that because the government is responsible for a large percentage of healthcare care spending that it therefore preoccupies the field just as if it ran just as if it owned and ran the healthcare system contrast the system that we have today with what's proposed by Conyers and Kucinich. under that proposal the definitions of the services that are covered are inscribed in federal law and the only place you can get it is from the federally funded program today we have a tremendous variety of health insurance packages that are out there in the private sector that benefit from federal tax subsidies. With Medicare Part D, not only do you have the standard Medicaid plan, Medicare Part D plan, you have all kinds of actuarial equivalent plans, a tremendous variety of plans with different sorts of coinsurance, different types of covered benefits, different formularies. So yes, indeed, you have public sector dollars, but the key is that a lot of the choices remain in private hands, in the hands of the insurance company, in the hands of the individual provider. And so that's really the question to ask. Now, so when you look, for example at health insurance exchanges. Uh, you know What Michael says is absolutely right. Uh, the way most people are talking about it, there would not be an infinite variety of health plans that are available in the exchange. It would not be infinite choice. However, it would be substantially increased choice for the vast majority of Americans who today have a choice of one and only one. Vast majority, not true. More, 50%, 51% of people with ESI are offered just one plan by their employer. They would see a lot more choice, Infinite choice, no. I'm not sure infinite choice is desirable, but greatly expanded choice, yes. But critically important is the incentives change under this proposal. I think, it, I think for people who like the idea of health insurance markets, they really need to take this seriously. Um, you know, the, the FEB system, the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program, has been characterized by my friend Bob Moffett over at Heritage as one of the few functioning health insurance markets that we have in the country. Why? If a federal employee picks a plan that costs more, they pay more. And so each individual employee has to decide, "Is it worth it to me?" and they go to the federal checkbook and they see what are the pros, what are the cons, uh, how much is it going to cost and so it 's not just government regulation that drives the choices of the insurance company in terms of benefits it 's a desire for increased market share, and that would be a key characteristic of the health insurance exchange too if it 's done right, and I agree with Michael, it could be done wrong. The details on these things have to get have to be done properly, but honestly, people who like the idea of markets should really take this seriously as an opportunity because what we have a chance to remedy other market failures too, not just the displacement of cost consequences onto third parties, which is a key feature of employer sponsored insurance and a troubling feature of employer sponsored insurance, but also transparency. I mean, right now, if you want to go and buy a non group po- mo- policy in, in the free market, you can't see what the terms are. All you get is a little summary. If you want to buy non-group market, non-group coverage, you can't even get a premium quote in states that do medical underwriting until after you've committed and gone through the medical underwriting process, invested a lot of time, and then pulled back. So transparency reforms will help the market function more effectively, and the shifted incentives, I think, will help as well. Now, will it be a perfect free market? Absolutely not. But I would argue that for people who like markets, it would move us more in that direction. Um, It wouldn't move us towards the end of the rainbow, and it certainly would not be anything like socialized medicine.
0: Okay, I, I we could go on you for could. a while, but I want to take your questions, and be, I'll take the uh, the chairman emeritus's prerogative and uh, I give the first question to Bill Niskanen. I find a, a dis- discussion of whether uh, discussion of definitions wholly unproductive, wholly and completely unproductive. The issue is whether the change that is being considered is desirable and to whom not whether it is in the direction of what somebody's definition of socialism is. Now, the particular question to Mr. Mr. Dorn, why do you seem to favor a government program rather than eliminating the interstate uh, restrictions on interstate insurance, private health insurance, which would greatly increase the, uh, the choice of people um, without having a government program?
1: it um, is good. Well, first of all, I, I think we're in agreement. I, it sounds like all three of us are in agreement that the issue of labels and definitions is not really the right question. The right question is what's going to be the best thing for the country. But there are people who are fixing labels, and they're not doing so necessarily to illuminate the discussion. In some cases, but to try to provoke the public into going one direction or another. Uh, but I think, I, I, but I, I'm delighted that we're all in agreement that what counts are the consequences. Now, your question addresses precisely that: the consequences. Why do I favor an approach other than? Permitting an insurer domiciled in one State to sell products in other States? Well, first of all, I am concerned about the uninsured. Uh, at this point in time, there are probably about 50 million people who lack health insurance. And I am convinced by a lot of research that if you don't have health insurance, your utilization of necessary services declines and there are serious, serious adverse health consequences. We did a paper where we updated the Institute of Medicine's methodology and estimated that more than 20,000 people a year are dying because they don't have health insurance. These are women whose breast cancer doesn't get diagnosed early enough for effective treatment. These are men who have hypertension or diabetes and can't afford to fill their prescriptions, and so their conditions worsen. I mean, thank God we have good health care in America today that makes a big difference uh, in our likelihood of survival. And people who face the diminished access to health care that comes with being uninsured do not enjoy uh, the same kind of opportunities that the rest of us do. So I I think you need government resources. Two-thirds of the uninsured have incomes below 200% of the federal poverty level. These are folks who cannot afford to to buy the kinds of insurance that offers them access to health care that they can afford. And so that means you need subsidies. It means you need government dollars. That's one one important piece. Lots of different ways you could provide those those public dollars. I've written a lot over the years about ways you could do tax credits, for example, or ways you could do Medicaid. I mean, I, I'm I'm open to that. I think we have to look at the concrete consequences. In terms of the specific proposal that you mentioned about letting insurance companies sell across, about, across interstate lines, I worry about that because um, I worry that it it makes it difficult for the states that have a more um, cons- a, a more uh, I'm, I'm trying to search for a neutral adjective here, and I don't think I can. Some would say a more um, regulated approach. Some would say a more consumer-friendly approach makes it hard for you to maintain those rules. In other words, if you know, if I'm the state of Massachusetts or I'm the state of New Jersey, and I have and I say everybody who buys insurance in the non-group market has to pay one price for one product, no matter how old you are, how young you are. Community rating, it's called. Um, well, and then suddenly an Alabama insurer can come in, and and they can cut the price for a 20-year-old healthy person. Why, that 20-year-old healthy person is going to go buy the Alabama product. And then the only people left in my New Jersey products are going to be the older and sick, and the prices are going to go up. It's going to explode. So that proposal would really be the same thing as the federal government saying no state may, in, may regulate the non-group market uh, uh, in a way that exceeds what Alabama and Mississippi do. Uh, it's kind of – and if you want to do that, do it straight on. Pass, have the federal government pass a law that says no state may, may regulate in ways X, Y, Z. Don't hand over to Mississippi and Alabama the authority to decide the insurance regulations that will apply in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. Um, so that's a little bit of why, why I'm concerned about it. And I worry that if, if the non-group market goes in that direction, then the people who need the insurance the most, older folks, people with health problems, will be least able to access it. And, and therefore, they won't get the access to health
0: care that they need. I do think that the, uh, the definitional question does uh, illuminate the discussion because it highlights the consequences of different policies because, uh, because the, the terms – socialized medicine for better or for worse, is associated in most people's minds with certain consequences. Uh, but that said, uh, of course, you know, the policies are more important. And I think that your point about letting people purchase health insurance uh, from other states, regulated by other states other than their own, is is, is a, an important one and a key, uh, a, a key tool in our policy toolbox for reforming health care, making it more affordable and, and, and improving the quality. Uh, Stan mentioned the uninsured, and and I uh, have uh, no reason to doubt, uh, I'm, I'm aware of no reason to doubt, why their estimate that 20,000 Americans lose their lives every year because they lack health insurance uh, is off. Maybe it's a little higher, maybe it's a little lower. But uh, I, I, I think it's probably in the ballpark. Um, letting people purchase insurance on their own from other states, I think, would go a long way toward solving that problem. A lot of those uninsured people... Uh, are people who had insurance once, got sick, lost their jobs, and then lost their health insurance as a result. When people buy health insurance directly from an insurance company, that doesn't happen, uh, or it, does, it doesn't happen nearly as often. Uh, coverage stays with them when they get sick, so the people who buy insurance through the individual market are much less likely uh, to end up uninsured. Uh, and letting people purchase insurance from states other than their own would make the individual... Insur- the in- inv- make the individual health insurance market a much more attractive option uh, for a lot of people and uh, cut into those 20,000 lives lost every year, I think, by making coverage more continuous. There are legitimate concerns about that idea, letting people purchase insurance uh, across state lines. Stan mentioned that uh, some states might gut their consumer protections to, uh, to make health insurance more affordable, collect the premium tax revenue for themselves, and therefore people in New York would be buying uh, health insurance from Alabama that's uh, that has no consumer protections, and then when their insurance company so- stops paying their claims, they're not going to get the care they need and they're going to die. That is... A possibility that could happen in some instances, but you have to play it play it all the way out. How would people respond if this sort of thing happened? If Alabama is gutting its consumer protections, people from Alabama are probably going to be buying insurance policies with those lousy consumer protections, and then if they get hurt, they're going to let their uh, their state legislators know, and those state legislators are going to change those laws. If people in New York are hurt by that, they are going to stop buying health insurance from Alabama. Alabama and the firms that do business there are going to get a bad reputation it 's not that we 're going to end up with a race to the bottom if we allow consumers to choose essentially who provides and enforces well who provides their consumer protections and what are the rules that will govern govern their health plans we're, what we 're going to get is a race to something like an equilibrium between too much consumer protection and too little If you have too much then you 're making health insurance more affor- more expensive and a lot of people can 't afford it and we 're Adding to that twenty thousand people who lose their lives every year because they don't have health insurance, I would argue that right now what we have is a race to the bottom because we are allowing insurers—I'm uh, sorry, insurance regulators in each state—a monopoly over the provision of those consumer protections. And as we all know, monopolies produce a, uh, a low quality and high cost product incidentally this is one reform that it has been estimated would cover millions and millions of uninsured americans but not cost the federal government a dime which is a much better deal, deal than what senator kennedy has proposed covering i think 16 million americans at a cost of one trillion dollars
1: I, I, I didn't speak very clearly obviously um, my point wasn't that You'll have less consumer protections in Alabama. My point was that the rating rules are different in Alabama than they are in states like New Jersey, Massachusetts, et cetera. That is, in states like Alabama and Mississippi, if I'm a young, healthy man – I get a huge break on the price of my insurance. If I'm an older, healthy guy, if I'm an older, unhealthy person like me, like the person I really am, I pay a lot more for insurance in a state like Massachusetts and New Jersey. It's the same amount no matter who I am. So the problem is you can't sustain – it's hard enough to sustain that kind of community rating uh, if it applies to everybody. But if all the young, healthy people are off buying the Alabama product, not because there's fewer consumer protections, I agree with you, there's going to be political push inside Alabama to make sure that Alabamians at a minimum have good consumer protections, but rather because it's cheaper for them to buy the Alabama product, the only people left in the community rated New Jersey product are going to be the old and the sick and the premium goes way up. That means the healthiest of those who remain are going to flee to the Alabama product and the premium goes back up. And as a result, whether the good people of Massachusetts and New Jersey like it or not, they're going to have no choice but to adopt Alabama's insurance rating rules. It makes it so, you know, if so th- that's really what it's all about. And if we really want to move to a system where we have uh, medical underwriting for everybody and no community rating or no modified community rating, you know, let's be up front about it and say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have the federal government pass a law and say, that is going to be the policy. We're overriding the judgments of state legislatures who feel to the contrary, but let's not assign that right as a practical matter to the legislatures of, of Mississippi and Alabama to decide for the rest of the country.
0: Well, I don't think it's a case of the federal government overriding the rules of uh, each state. It's a case of the federal the federal government tearing down the barriers to trade between an individual in New York and an insurance company that's, that's licensed by the state of Alabama. The Alabama can still make, or New York can still uh, pass its community rating laws, and if people want to buy insurance uh, under those rules, they can. But it's not the federal government telling them that they can't have those rules; only telling those states that they cannot bar f- from sale within their borders. Uh, uh, insurance products that operate under other rules what you, and what you say about community rating is uh, is accurate as far as it goes. If you allow young, healthy people to avoid the implicit tax that those price those community rating price controls try to extract from them in order to subsidize older sicker people, then they will avoid that tax and uh, but uh the same thing happens when when a community rating price control is in place. They try to avoid that tax by uh, by leaving the health insurance market, and uh, the older sicker people uh, respond by purchasing more coverage. That leads to more moral hazard and drives up premiums even further. And so you get this slow unraveling, what they call an adverse selection death spiral of insurance markets, and that's not just in states that have passed community rating laws. You can also interpret the slow unraveling of the employer-sponsored health insurance system the same way, because there the federal government imposes a uh, albeit loose form of price control that says that no employer can uh, charge different, <laughs> two different employees a different premium for the same plan. That's, in effect, a price control that prohibits risk rating of employer-sponsored health insurance. And what we see is a lot of healthy people opt out of those plans, um, and the, the, the people who remain in those employer plans are generally sicker, and the cost of those plans are going up and up. This is not sustainable over time. And what we find when we look at markets that do allow market prices for health insurance is that they do provide secure coverage to people, provided those people buy insurance when they are healthy and when they get sick over time their premiums don't go up just because they got sick they go up with the average in the group and the and the and the healthier people in their group subsidize the sicker people now that, as as you as you suggest, there w- there will be people who are left out by the market who cannot obtain health insurance, and I would argue that in a decent society we want to take care of them. We want to make sure that they get the medical care that they need. But that's not the same thing as uh, saying that they should have health insurance. We should be open to trying to sub- subsidize them in different ways, and we should, uh, I think especially try to avoid any way of subsidizing them that it, that's going to undo the good that the uh, that insurance markets can do for the vast majority of the population who uh, buy, buy health insurance before they get sick and then need health insurance later.
1: Well, we could go back and forth, but let me suggest that rather than doing that, let's get some more questions. Good idea.
0: On the aisle.
2: Uh, two points. Uh, one is, um, you know, I know the labels are not the flavor of the month right now, but I think that... Uh, what we described as uh, paternalistic medicine and um, and I would say that in some ways it's almost a little more dangerous than socialized medicine. For instance, uh, Singapore, very free market oriented society but there are a lot of rules around how people should live their lives, military service. You need to buy a house at a certain age and have three kids and so forth. And it's hard to put a price tag on on, on activities that are mandated by the government. For instance, two and a half years of military service. What's the price What's the price tag of something like that? And I think uh, having having socialized medicine is at least easier to put a price tag on it. Um, uh, the, the, the the price tag that, that society bears as opposed to having mandates and, and requiring people to do certain things. Second point is uh, with regard to, I think there, there seems to be, Broad consensus that we don't want um, a single payer or completely socialized medicine, and as well as we don't want to see people bleeding to death in the ERs. um, I'd just like to get uh, each of your opinions on what that right balance is. Where where, you know, how should how should what's the optimal mix uh, between socialized and uh, free market forces in this?
0: I'm happy to take that first. I think the optimal mix is not to have socialized medicine uh, at all, but to have freedom now. That is a lot of people will hear that and think that that means that uh, uh that means no charitable care and that that 's not what it means at all. It means that charitable care would be provided voluntarily now that 's not going to happen in my lifetime, and I recognize that uh, but uh there are better ways of providing uh uh health care for uh the the vast majority of the population. I think that that those b- better ways involve. Uh, more market forces, individual ownership of of the resources, letting individuals contr- own their health care dollars, choose their own health plan, and uh, reducing regulations so that the market can offer a wider variety of uh, health plans and ways of delivering medicine. And I think there's a lot of evidence from here in the United States that that is going to increase quality at the same time it reduces the cost of health care, making it more uh, affordable for, for everybody and reducing the number of people who are in need, who, who need charitable care. And what do we do about those people? Well, if government is always going to have uh, a role in, the, in that, uh, in providing charitable care to people, at least in our lifetimes, I think there are much better ways of doing it than we're doing it right now. The the federal Medicaid program encourages states to enroll people in their Medicaid and and state children's health insurance programs who don't need to be there. There's a lot of evidence. Most of it comes from the Urban Institute, that there are uh, people enrolled in those programs who could obtain private insurance on their own. So I think that uh, there are much better ways of providing charitable care to people, even if government is going to be doing it. The number one way would be to uh, reform the federal Medicaid program the way that Congress reformed welfare in 1996. Instead of encouraging states to, give, to enroll more people in those programs, give the states uh, a fixed amount of money that doesn't increase when they, as they increase their roles, but a fixed amount of money and give them the flexibility to target those funds to the truly needy. Uh, I think states will experiment with a lot of ways of doing that, and some of it will involve uh, reducing eligibility levels so that more people who can obtain insurance on their own do, and uh, kicking out off of their Medicaid or preventing people from enrolling in Medicaid uh, For nursing home care, who have the means uh, to purchase their own long-term care insurance or pay for their own nursing home care needs, but artificially impoverish themselves in order to become eligible for Medicaid. I think there's a lot that can be done there.
1: Um, So you want to hear my vision of the ideal world? Be a little different than Michael's. Um, It would. uh, I I agree that Medicaid um, needs some serious reforms, but I would. I would go in in quite a different direction Um, today. The federal government forbids states from covering poor people through Medicaid unless they fit a federally defined category, meaning child, parent, pregnant woman, elderly or disabled. Uh, So if you're somebody between the ages of 21 and 64, you're not so severely disabled that you can't work and you're not currently caring for a dependent child, doesn't matter how poor you are, you can't qualify for Medicaid under the, the general program rules. Some states get waivers, et cetera. But as a result, more than half of the low-income uninsured in America today are these non-categorical adults, childless adults, empty nesters. So step number one, I think, is to say, let's, let's take Medicaid and, and make sure that it covers everybody in America who's poor. Step number two would be to say, for people who are low-income or moderate-income, people who don't make enough, to be able to afford coverage um, without an employer's help. We need to help them afford coverage. And when I say coverage, I agree with Michael. The point is access to health care. Health insurance serves two goals. One, it guards assets against an unforeseeable um, occurrence, you know, being hit by a car, terrible injury. That's the classic function of insurance. But health coverage, as it's come to evolve in the United States, does more than that. It's the way we have access to health care. And folks, if you want the kind of health insurance that makes it affordable. To access and when I say affordable, I mean without paying thousands of dollars for deductibles, uh, you know, twenty percent coinsurance amounts or more, things that 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 moderate income people just we know if you earned less than fifty thousand dollars a year, you're gonna go without essential care. If you have a high deductible plan. If you want to make that coverage affordable, you you're gonna have to subsidize people. The cost of the average employer based plan for a family in America is about the same as full time minimum wage employment year round. So the bottom line is Medicaid for the poor, significant premium subsidies for people who are – have incomes above the poverty level but are unable to afford coverage, establish market-like mechanisms like a health insurance exchange where you have a range of plans in which people can choose, make sure that people can – Experience the financial consequences of their choice, so it moves it more in a market direction so that plans uh, evolve not just in response to government command, command, but in response to market forces. Make it possible for people to – not just for the small employers and individuals without access to employer-sponsored insurance to buy into those exchanges, but big companies too. I mean, ultimately, we want to be in a position where no matter who is your employer, if you like your health insurance plan, you can keep it. Over time, and I think that 's critically important to bringing down healthcare care cost growth too. Uh, why today uh, and in, we, we know a lot of things are going to control costs. We know that, that if we do health information technology in the right way, patients that are medical homes, incentives for evidence based care, integrated systems of care for years we 've known these things work, and yet they 're not applied except in one or two cases. why? Why should an insurance company invest in my well being when there's a 21% chance that next year I'm going to be covered by another insurance company and that a competitor will reap the benefits? Why should a physician invest $20,000 for an electronic health record system when most of the financial gains are going to accrue to in the insurance company? Why should a hospital invest in implementing effective programs to reduce rehospitalization when the benefits accrue to an insurance company and the hospital may even lose revenue as a result? If instead we shift to a system where the insurance company is going to have my business over time, it then has an incentive to invest in my long-term well-being. So those are some of the reforms that I would advocate.
3: This question may be a little, a little off of what you're talking about, but uh, you, if you if you think it is, then just don't answer it. Um, you're talking about making essentially how do we make uh, medical services cheaper? How do we provide for the poor? That's the sort of simple underlying problems. And I I'm always amazed that I hear very little about well why don't we get rid of all this uh, this licensing restrictions that we have let why don't we have systems where people can go online and and take a big gigantic questionnaire and solve their own health problems to the extent that they don't have the money why don't we have a system where where we have to where uh, people have to get a doctor's permission to get a prescription i believe that all this regulation is not really there to protect the consumer it's always done it's always said that way but what it's really there is to protect the professions and the number of people that go in there. Uh, final point is, I mean, why does somebody have to, to become a doctor have to go to that? Sir, because you
0: speak into the microphone?
3: Oh, why why does somebody who wants to become a doctor have to go to four years of undergraduate, three years? I mean, we have created a system that's where that's where the system, to me, creates such expensiveness. You go to a doctor and uh, it's it's very very expensive and people of course because of insurance they they've actually become oblivious to just how expensive it is
1: i actually think there's a lot of what you say that makes a lot of sense um in particular i think you know that that well you think so we agree um I, you know i i'm I think that, that, that licensure and pr- scope of practice laws in the states that diminish the ability of non-physician professionals to provide health care, it's a real problem. I mean, we're facing a shortage in this country of primary care physicians. There's a lot that advanced practice nurses can do, that physician's assistants can do that they're not allowed to do. And I agree with you that it's oftentimes it's not a function of what's really going to protect the consumer. It's a function of, you know, the docs are a guild and they lobby the legislature and they're politically powerful and they get those rules passed. I totally agree with you. But on the other hand, I think there are needs for some regulation. I don't have the specialized, and I don't know whether, you know, Joe Smith is a competent medical professional or not, and yet I know when he tells me that this pill will work and that one won't, when he tells me that, that you know, you can take this and it'll have such and such a result, and it's been tried for 20 years, so you don't have to worry, Stan, about what its implications are going to be. I need to know that I can trust that guy's training and judgment or that woman's training and judgment. So, so certification and licensure, I think, does play a critically important role. Um, you can... So, so his, no, his point was, was, well, you could – okay, certification is fine, but, but well, you know, why don't we have a system, for example, where I'll know that if you're a doctor and you have licensure X, you have a certain level of training. But if you're a you know, curandera and you're in the community and you have license X, license Y, you have a different level of training. I can make that choice problem is sometimes when people use curanderas in the immigrant community, which they do in many cases when they can't afford doctors, they get bad treatment and people die from diseases that could have been presented, prevented. I mean, let me put it this way. Regulation can save lives. Regulation can hurt people. And it's not a function of saying all regulation is good, all regulation is bad. It's a function of, in a democracy, we have to keep our eyes open and do our darndest to make sure that, that, that we do the right kind of regulation.
0: I want to, I, I if, if, if I can uh, respond to your, to your, uh, uh, to your question, question. I think that if the private sector were making healthcare better, cheaper, safer all the time, making it more affordable for everybody, we wouldn't be having these discussions. We wouldn't have a Medicare program. We wouldn't have uh, a lot of these other government interventions that are trying to uh, you know, tax credits and whatever, these proposals trying to make health insurance more affordable for people. The problem is that the private sector is not doing that, and so that leads to more and more uh, government intervention, but I would submit that it's government intervention that's the reason the private sector isn't, and licensing laws are not really part of the discussion of healthcare reform right now. Unfortunately, I think they should be because I think they're one of the key things that is keeping medicine from getting better, cheaper, and safer all the time. And you touch on a number of of, of ways. Uh, one that uh, sort of sticks in my craw is that the licensing laws and the scope of practice restrictions that Stan mentioned uh, have a have a particularly detrimental effect on the uh, creation and the spread of a particular way of organizing and uh, and and paying for uh, medicine. That is the integrated prepaid group practice that you have at like Group Health or Kaiser Permanente. These are plans that uh, rely on uh, mid-level clinicians more often mm-hmm. than, uh, than not or more often than the rest of the health sector and uh, lo- look for other ways to make medical care more efficient. You sort of hinted at the idea of using computerized diagnostic tools to help people uh, f- figure out what's wrong with them at a lower cost than going all the way to the doctor or, uh, or, or, or see a nurse practitioner. But nurse, doctors and nurse practitioners could use these uh, tools as well. Those sorts of health plans, like Kaiser, have an incentive to in, invest in those things, just like they have an incentive to invest in electronic medical records and so forth, because they will make uh, health, the delivery of healthcare less expensive, and that actually benefit accrues to Kaiser as opposed to the rest of the healthcare sector. Um, the problem is that those licensing laws hold uh, hold back that model of care by restricting uh, the ability Kaiser's ability to use nurse practitioners and physician assistants to their full competence. I think Stan is right. You need some form of uh, uh, quality assurance and even some form of government regulation in order to uh, make sure that you are getting a quality provider who knows what they're talking about. And But I don't think that licensing actually provides that sort of guarantee because, uh, yes, it does exclude uh, a lot of uh, unqualified people from practicing medicine. But at the same time, licensing hasn't protected us from misdiagnosis rates of 10 to 20 percent. It hasn't protected us from me- medical error rates that uh, uh, cause an estimated 50 to 100,000 Americans to die in hospitals every year, which is two and a half to five times as many as die from uh, a lack of health insurance. So... Um, I think that there's a better way of providing that sort of quality assurance, and it's analogous to what we were talking about earlier, letting uh, licenses that are issued by one state be used in other states uh, in terms of health insurance. The same thing can happen uh, with with licensing of clinicians. If the federal, federal government were to say to states, you can no longer use your clinician licensing laws as a barrier to entry into your markets, well, then Kaiser could spread from from California into other states using uh, the licensing the and scope of practice rules that were established by by California and have let Kaiser Permanente grow and pardon the word thrive in in that market. It would be it would. L- uh, would lower the barriers to entry for, this, uh, for for Kaiser and similar health plans in most states and allow those very sorts of innovations that you're talking about to spread and make health care better, cheaper, and safer?
1: Well, let's I think there like are that. a
0: lot of questions, so if we can, we'll, we'll we'll come back to you. How about the gentleman on the aisle right here?
4: Thank you. And thank you both for, your, for all your comments. Um, I am a recovering philosopher, so I could ask definitional questions all day, but in deference to your chairman emeritus, I won't. Um, getting no problem. <laughs> getting back to your dialogue on um, the lifting of the interstate boundaries, um, we've been speaking about states as if they're homogenous entities that everyone throughout a state is 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 on is on parity. But just taking the Commonwealth of Virginia, I've lived in southwestern Virginia where you go into Floyd County and it's very different than say Loudoun County or Fairfax County. So. I was wondering if we do – and this is primarily to you, um, Mr. Cannon – if we were to lift the barriers and allow for interstate um, commerce of insurance and licensing of insurance, and we don't have any regulation and we've removed all sort of socialized – the socialized medicine ideal, then what sorts of protections are there going to be for the disparities that will – that already exist and will inevitably continue to exist within states themselves –
0: well, I don't think that uh, I'm not advocating getting rid of all regulation. I'm letting I'm advocating letting individual uh, consumers and employers choose which regulations are going to govern their health plans. So, um, and I also think that you know there's there, uh, there's a strong uh, role that government can play in enforcing contracts, of course. And uh, in the case of uh, uh, clinicians, I think that the local medical malpractice rules should always apply, rather than a malpractice rules from another state. So even if another state's uh, licensing uh, rules would would follow uh, the the provider, I don't think that the the med mal rules should. I think those sh- those should be determined locally, and maybe even in some cases by contract. <clears throat> But as to the issue of what about you know what about uh, uh, Lee County, Virginia versus uh, Fairfax County, Virginia? Um, they're very different places. They have different income levels, and, and, and the people there probably have different preferences. So uh, your question, is, I, I think that the answer to your question is that regulation actually tends to hurt uh, the, the, the less advantaged uh, people, the, the, the lower income people, uh, disproportionately. And, and here's why. Here's a couple of examples. You can pass all these regulations at the state level uh, that require people to buy coverage for all sorts of different kinds of services uh, as part of their health insurance package. And uh, the higher-income people will have an easier time affording health insurance when that happens. But the lower-income people in the rural areas will have a harder time, even though they might not even have one—you uh, know—a chiropractor in their county, or uh, an, an, an osteopath, or a or a podiatrist in their county. They might not even have uh, ready access to those services. You're forcing the, the forcing them, them to purchase coverage for, um, but they're less able to uh, afford the, the coverage for those services. Uh, and what 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 you'll find when it comes to clinician licensing is. States that have um, uh, states where a larger share of the population is rural and very spread at, spread out i 'm sorry spread out tend to have uh, much looser or I'm, i should say uh, much broader scopes of practice for nurse practitioners, for example, so that nurse practitioners in rural states like Montana and Wyoming can prescribe narcotics uh, as uh, actually i 'm not sure that in those states but they have broader prescriptive authority than in highly urbanized states. Uh, but in states like California, where you have uh, both highly urbanized areas and some pretty spread out rural areas, you get a problem. the uh, the, the, the lobbyists for the for the physicians and the nurse practitioners they'll, they'll tend to narrow the scopes of practice for other clinicians, so as to reserve more of the market for themselves. Uh, which is fine if you're in an urban area and you can go see a doctor, but uh, it's it's it makes things harder in uh, rural areas because. Um, the nurse practitioners have more restrictive scopes of practice. They have you know, an urban uh, scope of practice, if you will. And uh, it's harder for people in the rural areas to find – to get access to care because the scopes of practice of the nurse practitioners are not as broad. Uh, Just because a larger share of the population is in an urban area and they can uh, get away with uh, 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 restricting the scopes – of the physicians can get away with restricting the scopes of practice of of nurse practitioners just because of the uh, political dynamics in that state. So I think actually that letting – insurance licenses and letting clinician licenses travel across state lines, is, it's going to help people in rural areas like Lee County, Virginia, and the rural parts of California, uh, whereas existing uh, uh, monopolistic regulation and those barriers to trade between states uh, actually hurt those uh,
1: those people. Uh, I'd like to make three comments, if I could. Number one, about licensure, interstate licensure, be really, really careful, my friends. Um, often, it's, it's not easy to take a license away from a doc. Uh, sometimes it happens, in, in fact, it's often the case that maybe somebody's a drunk or uh, a drug addict uh, or just a really terrible doctor who doesn't keep up, who makes awful, awful mistakes, and through a lot of difficult work, that license gets pulled, and if we create a world where the doc just needs to go and find get a license someplace else, I would be really worried, so be careful. Uh, Number two, in terms of thinking about interstate purchases of these kinds of things, I I thought of an analogy – because, because my, my concern is really you have to think about the dynamic, how things evolve if we permit interstate sales. And and you really would be taking away a lot of authority from state governments. And let me give you an example. Uh, medical marijuana can be sold in California on terms much more liberal than are allowed in most states. Suppose we passed a law that said it's illegal for a state to bar commerce, interstate commerce, that involves medical marijuana. If there's medical marijuana that's sold on terms in one state, it, it has to be purchasable elsewhere. My friends, do you honestly think that, uh, what would happen to the Commonwealth of Virginia's ability to regulate the sale of me- medical marijuana within its borders? Be gone, as a practical matter. So we need to be aware of what the consequences are, and just be honest with each other about what it is that that, that uh, the results would be of these policies. Maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's a bad idea, but let's be clear, it would mean that a, a certain level of deregulation would be mandated nationally, regardless of what the people in a particular state might want. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not, but let's just be clear about it. The final point that I would make is, and um, and I, and I uh, I make this uh, uh, hesitantly, being here in Cato, uh, but I will make it anyway, which is that we spend a lot more than the rest of the developed world on health care. We spend 50% more per capita than any other country. We're the only developed country that doesn't insure all of its people. And by a lot of quality matrices, not all, but by a lot, we don't get 50% more than every other developed country does. Now, let me point out that all the other developed countries have a heck of a lot more regulation than we do. They have a heck of a lot more third-party payment than we do. So it's not necessarily the case that more regulation equals poorer quality and more regulation equals equals higher cost. Other countries have found a way to avoid that dilemma. Perhaps we can too. Um, One other interesting fact that I've mentioned to you. If you were to look at a graph of per capita spending in the United States versus the rest of the developed world, until the early 1980s, we were not number one. Germany was a little above us in the in, in like early 80, 81. Check it out. Look at the graph when you get back to your office. Uh, what happened in the – and then suddenly in the early 80s, the U.S. started going off on a totally different trajectory than the rest of the developed world. Well, it, it, um, I was doing health policy in the mid-80s, and, and even then, the big excitement was deregulation, competition. That's how we're going to restrain price growth because back in the early 80s, even though we, we didn't know how good we had it, but we thought health care costs were rising too fast. So the whole strategy was we're going to eliminate certificate of need laws. We're going to – eliminate all this restrictive, all these, you know, restrictive rules and regulations and the free market will curb the growth of health costs, and the exact opposite happened. That's when the health care cost spiral went crazy. Now, I, I, at some point, I would love to get funding and really look at it and see what the heck was going on, but I will mention it's a pretty, and you can't, you know, you can't draw causal inferences from, from, you know, one thing following another, but it's a very interesting, suspicious fact to my mind, so I will share it with you today.
0: Um, How about the lady in the back?
5: Thank you very much. This has been extremely enlightening to hear both of you, your um, intellectual insights. Stan, and, and it was a perfect segue because I wanted to get into, we can get into the details and all of that, but I think what we really want, you brought us back to, it's the cost, and our care goals are necessarily attached to cost goals and fiscal responsibility. And uh, the certificate of need and all of that I, it brings me right to where the point I wanted to make was looking at the fundamental models You know, regardless of what the government's participation is, maybe or isn't, or all of those things, um, I think we have to get back to looking at our fundamental models and how our whole health enterprises are built, whether the health uh, maintenance organization or insurance with the corporate and stake, you know, stock shareholder and executives uh, is the model. That hasn't been working too well, even with market forces, which I'm very much in favor of choice and market forces and getting the consumer meaningfully back into. The conversation and I don't think choosing between a PPO and an HMO and an employer based healthcare system is really choice, and that's all I've ever had. I would like to be able to have three, four, or five plans that are actually trying to compete for my eligible, you know, enrollment um, if we stay with that plan system. But I just want to share with you, um, I had my ankle operated on and in my mind I'm thinking three, 000, four thousand dollars, you know, fee to the physician, fee to the anesthesia. It was fourteen thousand dollars for Three hours for a 40-minute procedure, and spending three hours in a surgery center. We have a situation now where medical tourism is becoming the thing, and health plans are paying people to go get their care overseas, offshore. Now, that isn't the answer. It is just an, an a, a egregious system, a symptom of a very, very gone-arise. Enterprise. So, as we talk about reform, I hope it's simply not going to be developing a government-based plan that can enter into the space and try to, you know, promote the insurance, the, the private sector to be more reasonable. I hope that we look at the fundamental models. Like the hospital system is a very outdated, uh, obsolete model. Hosp is based on the word hospice, which was a place to go and die. So those large facilities that we pay exorbitant amounts of money to heat and cool and, you know, to have beautiful starry domes as entranceways as they compete and, and no more certificate of need. So everyone can have an MRI and a CAT scanner. Well, you remember the days, I mean, obviously you come from my era, where, where you had maybe a couple of CAT scanners that all the hospitals had to share. It, it's just out of control. It's so out of control. So the cost shifting is unbearable. And I'm thinking, well, I want to go back to the office base, this procedure could have been done in the office with a little Valium and a little local nerve block. And and that's the medicine I was trained on back in DOD medicine, where we had low cost, high quality, and access. And I'm not saying that socialized medicine is the way to go, not the way any of our models that we have seen. And I don't even want to use the word socialized, because I think it's really the practical effect of, have we achieved care goals, quality, and fiscal responsibility? And does the consumer have a place, a meaningful place, to help drive the drive the forces and the quality. So, I want to challenge both of you into putting your intellect on looking at model changes. You know, where, where can we go? How what can we do besides a hospital based model? Because that's seventy five percent of our healthcare cost, right there.
0: Well, I think the models are mostly driven by uh, the the payers, and uh, the biggest payer in the U.S. healthcare sector and in the world is the Medicare program, and the Medicare program pays. Uh, hospitals uh on a fee for service base a fee for admission basis really it um, it has a very rigid payment system it often overpays hospitals and so denies consumers uh, and taxpayers the benefits of more efficient ways of doing things and then, when it gets into paying ambulatory surgical centers to do th- the same procedures uh, it ends up uh the same sort of thing happens it sets its you know, controlled price at one level, and it stays that way for way too long, whereas competition would have competed that down. So I think you need to change who controls the money and how we determine the prices that we're paying if you want to change the way that medicine is delivered and make that more efficient. Right. When, and when I say you should change who's paying, I think that should be uh, the, the consumer should control the money, not necessarily to say that the consumer should be writing $14,000 checks to the hospitals, but that the consumer should be able to move from health plan to health plan uh, depending on which one provides them the most uh, uh, efficient care, the most affordable care in the most appropriate setting. So...
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I, I, I think a lot of what's been said makes a lot of sense, and I, there is that is actually one of the big directions that's happening in the health reform debate right now, which is how do we do health care delivery system reform? And I think the consensus seems to be – I'm not a real exp- – I'm not an expert in all that stuff, but my sense is the, the consensus seems to be what – the most effective way to go is um, – Uh, integrated delivery systems, you know, like Kaiser. And by the way, as Michael's paper points out, the label social the epithet socialized medicine has been used to try to prevent the development of those integrated delivery systems. So you know another bit of evidence for why we should get away from using epithets and focus instead on the merits of policy. But in any event, uh, the Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania, for example, has been effectively able to lower costs and improve quality. They are an integrated system, which means the same entity that invests in health records reaps the rewards, but also there's not many people who move around in central Pennsylvania. So that means if you're in Geisinger, Right now, you're going to be there down the road, so it makes sense to do some investment. I think we need to move in that general direction. I, you know, A problem with the with Kaiser is, you know, yes, indeed, they're integrated, but, but there's a, as I say, we know that with the employer-sponsored market, there's a 21% chance that I'm going to be in a different plan next year, not because I chose a different plan, but because my employer chose a different plan, or because I lost my job, or because I changed my job. And so um, I think we need to move in, in a direction of plans that have integrated entities where the, the same entity that bears the financial consequences of investment reaps the financial reward. Only then can we, and another example I'll mention to you, in the public sector, the Veterans Administration. I mean, you know, we had that horrible incident in the newspapers recently, and they've, they've had problems with the Iraq War, but between the late 90s and the start of the Iraq War, the VA did some amazing things. Ken Kaiser uh, came in in the Clinton administration and took what had been one of the worst healthcare systems in America and turned it into something that by, by just about all objective measures provided higher quality care than most commercial insurance did, in terms of what services people get. Diabetics, right? Diabetics ex, you know, diabetic veterans. Pretty tough group to serve. And yet, after an intensive intervention, they managed to reach the point where diabetes was under better control in people in the VA system than in people in commercial insurance. And at at the same time, not only did they slow – they didn't just slow the growth in costs, they reduced costs over a several-year period, according to GAO. Now, I don't think that's inherent in a public system. I don't think Geisinger's accomplishment was inherent in a private system. I think what counts is they were both smart systems. And they were both systems where there was an identity of financial interest in terms of the input and in terms of the output. And I think, think that is really the direction that we, we need to head if we want to bring health care costs under control and improve people's health. Now, again, the other piece is information. My goodness, we need information so badly. We don't know. What results an insurance company achieves. We don't know what reimbursement rates an insurance company will pay. They'll go to court. They'll fight you. They won't give you that information. You have to take them to court if you want it. Even if the, 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 even if the Medicaid program is paying those rates, they won't be capitated rates. They won't tell you what the physician services are. So if we're ever going to get a handle on it, either from a payer perspective or a consumer perspective, we desperately need better information.
0: Okay. Um, sir, on the inside there.
2: My question is primarily for Mr. Dorn. Uh, what makes you think that uh, a public section of the healthcare sector uh, that will compete with the private sector, how will it not eventually overtake the private sector? As each generation of politicians, you know, playing their, to their constituents, says, well, you know, we can give you a little more, we can give you a little more. How is it going to stay competitive and not, not become something greater?
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely a fair question. Um, did everybody hear his question? Okay. Um, I think it's you know you can set it up so that there's a level playing field or so there's not a level playing field. I mean there are plenty of examples of where the private sector has done quite well uh, in taking business away from the government. I'll give you a couple of examples. Medicaid, six, as of two thousand four, according to to HHS. Um, under the Bush administration, 60% of Medicaid beneficiaries were enrolled in private insurance as of 2004, 10 times as many as were enrolled in 1991. I'll give you a second example. The, the post office. Uh, in the, before the recession took place, there was about $90 billion worth of revenue being received by UPS and Federal Express. They managed to take a heck of a lot of business away from the post office, and I think the post office has had to improve its service as a result, and I think we're, we're all better off because of it. Uh, competitive sourcing of federal government work. For decades, we've had rules in effect under which private industry can come in and compete with government employees and take jobs away from government. Um, the most recent year for which data are available showed more than $200 billion of private contracts in the Department of Defense alone. Now, maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. Um, but I think I, I'm not terribly worried about the ability of the private sector to compete. I think the history of Medicare suggests that what ha- that if anything, what happens is the private insurers go to their, you know, their, they, they can lobby, and they set up the rules of the game so that they're favored. When Medicare first began getting into the HMO business, they pay. HMOs the same per capita rate that they do for -for fee-for-service Medicare folks. And what happened is the healthier people tended to opt into the capitated market, and so everybody said, well, they're they're being overpaid and then they adjusted the rates to reflect the experience level of people inside the plans and then suddenly they didn't do so well most recently since the I mean the, the Medicare drug benefit passed I mean let's you know let's be honest the thing passed with the it was uh, lots of stuff with a lot of goodies were in there for the docs and the and the and the prescription drug companies and one of those goodies was that the that the the private uh, plans got extra money, be above and beyond the average for fee for service. So, in fact, the way it's worked out is the private sector has done pretty darn well for itself. So, you know, yeah, absolutely, in theory, you could set it up so that one side wins or the other side wins. I think, the, I think the, the the goal here would be to say, let's work hard, let's do our very best to set up a set of rules so that it's a fair playing field, fair to the consumer, so that we all benefit, so that we have private insurers that aren't exercising their oligopolistic power and refusing to compete and refusing to share their gains with us, and instead pocketing their gains and sending them off to shareholders. I want to see those premiums come down. And I think if we have vigorous competition, it'll happen. I, uh,
0: I, I don't see how um, – um, I, I agree with your, with your concern. I don't think there can be a level playing field between government and private insurance. Uh, and I don't see how taking uh, – how, uh, how the government, either in the Medicaid program or in the Medicare program, the government writing checks to insurance companies instead of writing checks directly to doctors is somehow the private sector winning or the private sector out competing uh, government um, that's just politicians deciding to write checks to different people uh, it's still a government program it's still controlled by the government it's still the, the government controls the money the politicians control where where the money goes and special interests of course influence the politicians and so I agree with Stan that the the insurance companies are ripping off the taxpayers through the Medicare program and probably the Medicaid program as well but uh, you know, I don't know that there's a right answer between should we let uh, if the choice is should we let doctors uh, and hospitals rip off the taxpayers or should we let the insurance companies rip off the taxpayers through these government programs. Uh, so I don't think that that's an, ex- an example of, uh, of of the private sector beating government um, or out-competing government. Uh, the, the, the government's share, I think, uh, either re- in both of those instances either remained the same or grew. Um, and as far as the the, the postal service uh, post Postal service. I think that is an important, um, uh, an important example of of, of how government competes in uh, In the market for first class mail the u s Postal Service is granted a monopoly by the government so that no one can compete with it it doesn 't pay taxes it doesn 't uh, even pay parking tickets um, it It is showered with all sorts of advantages by the government that uh, um, that 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 not only affect the market for first class mail but affect the market for uh, other services as well I think the fa- the fact that uh, that um, UPS and FedEx have been able to compete in those other markets so, uh, so well just hi- highlights how um, inefficient government is and, and how uh, the private sector uh, does uh, do a better job when the government is, uh, is, um, is uh, bestowing fewer uh, unfair advantages on its own plan. But I don't think you can completely eliminate those unfair advantages. And I have to uh, make that the last question because we're at about 1.30 right now. So thank you all for coming. And I hope you'll join us upstairs for lunch and our am going to go. And I want to thank Stan Dorn for coming here as well.